This podcast is supported by our friends at Birkenstock Australia. For a quarter of a millennium, Birkenstock has been applying its craft to footwear. The anatomically shaped design of the Birkenstock footbed reflects a footprint in the sand, which enables natural walking, even on the hard surfaces of modern cities. Find out more at birkenstock.com.au. Hey there, friends. Nathan here on the Dumbo Feather podcast. I'm on the lands of the Woiwurrung Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and want to acknowledge those who have cared for and continue to care for country, particularly the traditional owners of the land and the elders past and present. This week, we're sharing a conversation I loved having with Waste Queen, Vina Sajwala, as part of Vivid Festival 2022. I give a bit of an intro to Vina in the preamble before the chat, but essentially, she's a trailblazer in the field of recycling science. I love Vina's joyful spirit, her brilliant mind, and her ability to offer very practical solutions to the waste crisis. Vina's work leads us away from the current take-make-waste industrial model towards more circular economies, or what she calls economies of purpose. Big thanks to Vivid for hosting this conversation. Early this year, we put out this systems change issue of Dumbo Feather, and through that process, I got to meet this fabulous person sitting next to me. Vina is an inventor, an engineer. She's a leading expert in recycling science. And when we chatted early this year, I was kind of not only blown away by Vina's work, you know, transforming waste into really valuable products like steel and ceramics, I was also taken by Vina's framing of waste as an opportunity and the individual and collective changes that we can make to find our way out of some of the mess that we're in. So, Vina, thank you for being back in conversation Thanks. with me. It's so good to Thanks. see you again. Thanks, Nathan. Thank um, you for having me back. <laughs> yeah, so good. So I wanted to take you back to your childhood. Vina grew up in Mumbai, and I wanted to kind of get a sense of your environment and what your lifestyle was then, and particularly how that relates to some of the views that you have now around waste. For sure. Now, thanks, Nathan. Mumbai is a place that when you kind of live there, or even if you go to visit, it's a kind of place that never really gets out of your system. There's so much happening. There's so much buzz in the city, whether it is about the places that you find yourself in, those little back alleys or the markets or the street food and everything else. It's exciting. It's like you could be there for days and days and run into all kinds of new things. So, you know, if you're a kid growing up in Mumbai, I mean, I compare it to a never-ending Disneyland. It's so much fun. (laughs) You just have to make sure you don't get lost in that city. That's the scary bit of growing up in Mumbai. And of course, it's like you can solve any problem from your broken electronic device at home or your shoes or your clothes or whatever. It's, of course, very well known as a financial capital, Mm. you know, the industrial capital of India. And of course, when you get that vibe from literally at the grassroots level, you get to really appreciate how everyone's connected. And in a way, everyone who's doing their bit in society Mm. is really able to make a living. And of course, it's got its challenges. But the fact that if you think that you're entrepreneurial, you've got skills, you really find that people will support you, will want to stand back and have a chat. So for me, it was a really cool way to experience life, whether it was taking public transport to school or just walking through the streets. Some days coming back home would take me 20 minutes. Some days would take me two hours. (laughs) 
finding different ways to even walk home. People you'd run into and chat because they happen to be the people fixing shoes, you know, yeah, yeah. outside the busy stations. So it's a city where you can explore, you know, have lots of fun, but also I think be inspired by people who are doing it tough, but yet the There's spirit, yeah. yeah, the spirit was incredibly inspiring, you know. People did it tough. There is no question about that. And I think to me, just being able to earn a living, if I now sit back and I remember how much people earn, you know, that example of the guy who fixes your shoes, how much they earn and how far they have to live, you know, coming into the CBD to set up this little shop in area of one meter square. That's inspiring, right? But you would never get the sense that people were complaining or upset. Mm. They were really positively engaged. All I knew as a kid was you stopped to have a chat and people would be happy to have a chat. That's the spirit of the city yeah, that you know, I was born in. And, yeah. and what were you like at school? So when does the passion for science and technology come into Vina's life? I think the one thing that I do remember distinctly, I don't know if you can brand that as a kid who wants to be rebellious, but just did not want to always be confined to the classroom. Any excuse to go out and explore and do something else, whether it meant doing your drama practice, because the English teacher said, you know, this is part of the drama class, you had to do that. So for me, it was more about, okay, cool, this is a great way to have fun with friends and get out of class and you did all that. To me, different aspects of life in school were fun as long as I was also allowed to be who I was and yeah. at times you're not. But I think to me, again, it was about if I'm sitting outside and making noise because I'm practicing my lines, you know, with my friends doing the drama thing, the other teachers were getting a bit annoyed coming out and telling you to shush. And you go, no, no, but miss, this is yeah. all part of a lesson. We've been told we have to do this. <laughs> so there wasn't a moment where science was like, this is my jam. This is what I want to be doing. Was there that kind of... You know, I don't think it was anything quite like that one moment. It was, I think, all these elements in life. I never saw science as this thing where you had to go into the lab and do things. Mm. To me, it was all around the world in which I lived, mm. whether it was the guy who was repairing your shoes or your clothes or those bazaars that were selling spare parts to fix certain things and you had to stop and understand what this guy was doing. I guess that was life. You couldn't live life unless there was somebody who was getting those car parts repaired or what have you. So I guess in a way it was everywhere around us and in many instances because it was obviously mixed with entrepreneurship and commerce and people making a living and everyone trying to be supportive of each other. Mm -hmm. But the core element of the fact that there were things people made and did, mm. to me, that's what was amazing about Mumbai. Your mum was a big influence on your life. I yeah, remember yeah. reading. She was a pediatrician. Yes. And even now when she's out there practicing in a kid's school and helping a few kids out, I have to hold her back. I'm like, you don't have to work every day. You know, you can take a day off. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. She's absolutely out there. To me, that's who she is. She's just somebody who... It seems like your work ethic then and your, yeah. your passion comes yeah. from that line. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, I heard her give a quote. She's just saying that women always needed to be on top. They yeah. never be below men. I felt like that was quite revolutionary, I think, for probably some oh. of her generation. Oh, culture. absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I mean, she's probably way ahead of the curve when it comes, as you say, her time and culture and right. all of that in India to study medicine and to specialize, to do all of that. And she worked in a government clinic. So that wasn't easy because, as mm. you can imagine, these are clinics where it's just nonstop from kids to adults to everyone. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I ever saw her feeling like, oh, I'm going to give up. 
this was relentless. Yeah. Even yeah. now to this day when she's uh, yeah. out there working for her, she kind of defines herself in that way. Yeah. And, um, and it seems like she kind of gave you this great stage um, and the kind of tools to really shoot high, work hard, aim high. Yeah. That's what you've gone on to do. Yeah. And I think that's important, isn't it? Whether it's family, your friends or a relative who's kind of supporting and encouraging. And I think to me, the fact that it was that constant figure of support is important mm. to all of us. We're all human beings mm. and we need some of that encouragement mm. um, every so often. So from Mumbai, you go to Canada, is that right? Yeah, yeah, and that's right. In Canada, you're studying... I Asia. did my master's there and mm. then Michigan in the States to do my PhD. Right. So yeah, North America was a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. And it was, again, inspiring professors who, again, in their own way, will talk to you. And I think, to me, that's the point. They are your partners in the research, in the yeah, work. Okay. And to me, again, I love the fact that you could have that conversation in a way that was on an equal footing, mm. which I think to me was something that I really admired about these world authorities in their field. So you were chasing professors that were inspiring you? Yes. That's what yes. took you there? Yes, exactly. And the fact that when you actually had that conversation with various people who've obviously chatted to them before I went, was very much about what would you like to do? What's inspiring you? And so I think there was that room to have lots and lots of these conversations and discussions and and what were some of the ideas that you were ruminating around that time (laughs) so uh, so I just remember in Michigan when we were looking at an iron foundry we were in this experimental facility out in the worst coldest part of Michigan that you can ever imagine (laughs) I just remember why we relying on traditional coal and coke so here we I was almost like the opposite so on one hand was all these amazing high-tech metallic parts but the way we were making it was still reliant on very much the traditional raw materials the usual answer you'd probably get from the traditional operators in any such system that's how we've always done it what do you mean (laughs) so I guess a little bit of that frustration was that I didn't necessarily have the ability to sort of go well why are you doing this therefore let's do something different because in a way it was confined to here's how we do things mm. it was definitely on my to-do list yeah you're gonna <laughs> come back to differently that. Uh, and you certainly back. did yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah and yeah. it was in canada that you met your husband yes rama that's right it's from <laughs> michigan that you find yourself in sydney is that yes right? that's right sydney. yeah and uh, in the university of new south wales yes mm-hmm. and it's here that you become really interested in the possibility of waste being used mm. as a solution yeah pretty big issues particularly steelmaking i think at this time yes that's right what was it that you were observing in terms of the problems that needed to be addressed uh, in terms of waste it was interesting as someone who's studied how to produce steel and iron and all the other metals and all those previous challenges of you know why we're still using a lot of traditional materials like coal and coke yeah that was the norm in that world And then there was this norm in this world around waste and waste recycling was that recycling means you convert that plastic bottle into that plastic bottle or that glass into glass. And it was almost like the two worlds weren't really talking to each other or they almost did not even know that they existed. And to me, it was odd that you've got all this fantastic resource that's ending up in landfill, literally piles and piles of it. And then you've got the opportunity where steelmakers can actually harness all these fabulous materials that actually try and tell the steelmakers, imagine how good you would feel, you know, you're taking all this waste and you're recycling it, you're doing it for the good of the planet. 
oh, but that's not our waste. Those tyres are not our waste. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can imagine, again, understandably from their point of view, that's tyres and plastics. What if this causes a problem in my operation? How am I going to deal with that? But I think I've got to give all credit to the steelmaking industry in Australia, with whom I've been working with now for a long time, that you can come through this journey where people with the right mindset, who've been absolutely supportive and can understand that the world needs to go in that direction. Yeah, we're talking about it now, but not all those years ago yeah, sure. when this, this conversation, yeah, this conversation wasn't happening. Mm. So to even be supportive of the research and to be able to allow that journey to unfold and of course had to do the science had to do the technology mm. and then had to take it into industrial trials to allow that to happen in partnership and was always in partnership which i think to me yeah. was something that i really loved again and it doesn't matter how large or small a company is yeah. it does come down to ultimately whether their values align with the values that you want to live by. And so I guess it doesn't matter where you work and what you do. If you can see that there is a way to make a contribution in your own work that goes beyond the traditional norms of practice, where will the world be in a decade or two? And to really start to think about your contribution and that of the sector that you work in. Yeah. You kind of found your people had the same values, they had the same vision. Yes. And you were then able to, to make impact. Exactly. And I think to me, that's still the way we work at the Smart Center. Mm. You know, that we collaborate and we work with people. We, of course, find out very quickly about what kind of values they hold and are they on the journey as equals with us. And we've got to be in the journey as equals. Yeah. And to me, it's not about, oh, well, you guys are out there doing your research or you scientists and engineers. It's about that partnership because I think to me, that's how you can really see that the world will deliver outcomes in a far more accelerated manner. It's not just a nice kind of linear thing. I've done my science in the lab for X number of years, and then I've done this implementation. And then I'll worry about talking to someone out there in industry. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the more we can start to work together all the way through that journey and understand each other's worlds of how should it get implemented, in the early days when we did do a lot of those experiments for green steel in the lab, it was important that even though that looked quite different to how it might be implemented on an industrial scale, it was important that in those early days, people from industry come in and immerse themselves in how those experiments were being done to be able to understand what was going on. What was going on, exactly right. We have those many, many moments where they would come over and then have a look at the experiments. I mean, a lot of those experiments are quite visual and exciting, yeah. you know, when you do understand what it's actually telling you. And of course, the data that further informs what those experiments mean, you can't help but be excited by it. Oh, wow, this is cool. So if that works then, that tiny furnace. And then explain to me, how does that work? There's more hydrogen in there. Right. Okay. That's better because, ah, that's more efficient. Okay. I get it. You know, so suddenly using waste tires and all of these materials in making of steel doesn't feel that remote, right? Yeah, it just okay. feels so logical yeah. to be able yeah. to say, yeah, of course, it's a lot better than me using coal and coke because I can now understand yeah. not only from a theoretical point of view, but I can understand from a practical point of view. Yeah. It's very rewarding. I bet. So part of that early stage was just being happy that the experiment worked. Oh my gosh, the experiment worked. Sure. So yeah. when that happens, and then you get to that point where you can see how this could actually do a lot better than traditional coal and coke materials and when you can see those reactions happening in front of your eyes and you're going 
oh my God, so there's a potential here that this could actually be better. That's when, I guess you would call it the goosebumps moment. Yeah, you want to yeah, go back absolutely. and look at it again and again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, and repeat the experiments again and again. That excitement, you don't have to be a scientist to feel. The ability to get someone engaged in science and technology and engineering, it doesn't just have to be about one scientist or engineer talking to each other. It's about how that message is, of course, shared. And I just remember in the early days in Pittsburgh presenting our work on this slag forming reaction and having all these videos and everything else showing. And I just sort of thought, well, you know, it's the last talk of the day. I just remember that. And people are just going to be so tired. No one's going to (laughs) care. It was something that I never expected, that kind of reaction from the audience where, yeah, half an hour talk and then half an hour, an hour later, we're still in the room because we happen to be the last session and the last talk of the day. People still want to engage and people of all walks of operations, which I think had given me that sense of optimism that if I'm speaking at a steel conference in Pittsburgh and here we are, we won an award and whatever for our work. But I think to me, you got that genuine grassroots feedback and engagement from people who had been in this industry for a long time. And I think to me, that was the best reward ever because it actually meant that, you know, people who can see themselves using this technology were giving you that feedback. And yeah, of course, they're going to ask you lots and lots of tough questions. But I think to me, that That was, yeah, 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 exactly. And then of course, you went through the process of commercializing it. Mm -hmm. It's now Mm -hmm. very commonly used. Yeah, well, I mean, we hope it gets to become more and more mainstream. Australia, of course, steelmakers loved it. And we've had many conversations, companies in places like Barcelona and others who've got the first generation of green steel that they've deployed and looking to take it further. So I think we still have a bit of that journey where a lot of these technologies in the early days, when they are being taken up by early adopters, the ones who then see this as an opportunity don't hold back from the first generation to the next generation. And I hope that there will always be that pipeline of more and more people wanting to see what are the benefits. And this is where it's that complex relationship between it's not just about the making of steel, but it's also about the fact that the raw material that now we're talking about has to be processed in a way that it's not just waste, it's a material that's waiting to be harnessed in this particular technology. So it's also about a broader thinking around these supplies of these different kinds of materials and you know how it's going to be made available and examples of organizations who are talking to us from whether it's people in Barcelona and other places about where is that feedstock locally available and in what way and how much can they access. And they always get excited when we start talking about tires and then they go, okay. But I've also read about your recent work where you're doing coffee waste. Am I right? And so people turn around and go, did I hear that right? You know, how much coffee waste is out there? And I think suddenly then they have a moment of realization themselves go, oh yeah, that's right. There is a lot of coffee waste out there. So I think part of that conversation automatically I'm seeing having that ripple effect, whether you're in the steel sector or not, it doesn't matter. And the kinds of things we hear about how much coffee waste is produced right here in Sydney, for instance, is mind boggling. So it's all starting off on that journey that says, well, it's not just about the fact that we're using waste tires. It's all these other opportunities around us. Mm -hmm. And so it's challenging that notion that, well, you know, if you're making a material in a certain way, it's only going to be made in this way. And we're constantly exploring what some of these other opportunities look like. So I think to me, that's the best part of the world we live in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what I loved about when we (laughs) chatted last time was your reframing of waste as an opportunity. Mm. It isn't a like for like waste into this product. Yes, that's right. 
there's a lot of creativity and a lot of mm. innovative solutions that we can bring. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the fact that, you know, you talk about things like whether it's coffee or waste textiles or glass. Yeah. I mean, the fact that in all of these cases, we're converting them into very different products. And it's not to say, well, it's only about converting like for like, as we were saying. So yeah, of course, some amount of coffee waste could well go into composting, but then there's more than enough coffee residue that's therefore, you know, leftover so you need to find multiple pathways yeah. to find solutions. So it's not to say that's just one size fits all. Yeah. It's about saying that there are multiple ways in which you can do things. And so depending on where you are in the world, you can actually start to evaluate those solutions. So you can start to think about that ability to have regional solutions. And so that then suddenly starts to challenge the notion that does everything have to always be about economies of scale or... You could also have economies of purpose that you are starting to say, well, actually, if I've got enough in this region, this particular waste can provide a feedstock into a manufacturer that's making steel or ceramics, then I can actually find multiple ways in which that material can be diverted away from landfill and into production. Mm. And if we've got those multiple pathways, then of course, you're encouraging more and more that way of thinking in yeah, society. Right. So the economies of purpose are about connecting regional areas and sharing their waste yes. depending on what factory yes, they're converting exa into. Exactly product. right, exactly right. So, you know, you are not necessarily always saying that everything has to be centrally aggregated, all waste in one big location. Yeah. And the only way I can make this work economically is by having one big giant smelter, but rather saying, okay, well, actually, if you had decentralized ways of making products, mm. depending upon proximity and the supply chains of materials that also will empower regions to actually take locally available waste and regionally available waste and to be able to think in a way that you're producing products that could well also be creating local opportunities, Yeah, which is really where we are starting to see that notion being embraced. You mm. know, manufacturers are starting to think you don't always have to make the end product or the finished product. Mm. You can be connected in that supply chain. So you could be somebody who's got coffee waste if that's what you are supplying into a production opportunity doesn't mean that the person who's generating tires or coffee waste or whatever has to go up and set up a steel making facility. Yeah, okay. It Someone's just means that. that someone else yeah. can be doing that, but you're part of that supply system. Yeah. Which amazing. I think is a great way to think that everyone then can really be connected. Yeah. And also to me, what I love about that way of doing things, it doesn't matter how big or small you are mm. as an organization. Mm. So you can be a small operator. And as long as there's a demand for what you're making and you're creating your feedstock, your material in a way that's going to have the obvious next destination and it's been designed in that way that you're part of that, then you're still going to actually be making enough money through that process. Mm. Whereas the last thing you want to do is collect something, produce something and then find, well, actually, there's no market for this. The more you make something that is fit for purpose in terms of the properties of any material that you're making, the better it is for an end user because then you can start to imagine everybody's making fit for purpose parts and components. So everyone's adding value. Mm. So after the steelmaking breakthrough, mm -hmm. you were able to find funding for the Smart Centre. Acronym is? 
Sustainable Materials Research and Technology. Right, at the University of New South Wales. <laughs> yeah, we have this incredibly amazing micro factory in our basement. This is where we produce our green ceramics and the idea that you can take your waste textiles and waste glass mm -hmm. and produce that and convert that into green ceramics is uh, what we do. Of course, the idea is that it's a demonstration facility so that it then allows us to produce prototypes and hopefully also inspire others to use it. So that's the whole purpose of having this system that is there in the basement in the building. So, so you kind of just rushed through what green ceramics were. <laughs> it's another pretty extraordinary <laughs> breakthrough. It's one of your more recent ones. Yeah, so green ceramics takes... Uh, textiles and glass. Glass waste, exactly right. Yeah, these really beautiful designer yeah, tiles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they look pretty amazing, but I guess we're probably a bit biased. But, yeah. but we've been told by a few people that it looks pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the general feedback, you know, we get from everyone when they come and have a look is how quickly can we get our hands on it? Yeah, right. And, and there's lots of designers yeah. and architects are using your tiles now. Yeah, there have been lots of them, you know, from sort of various organizations and local councils and so on, interested and excited about what green ceramics could look like. And potentially it gives an opportunity for people who are going to be using it in their offices or in their buildings to be able to bring their own design into it so people can bring in their look and feel and the colors yeah, and cool. all of that into these green ceramic tiles. And so for us, that was a culmination of a lot of work over many years that also meant that we were able to walk the talk first, right? So to be able to make it in our own labs and then to take it into a micro factory, I think mm. it meant really from our perspective is to be able to have the piece that you could say to people, yep, look, we've not just made it in the lab as a little prototype, yeah. Right? Yeah. but it's actually something that you can manufacture it is at a scale that any producer could set up yeah. in their own micro factory and that's exactly what happened in Kudamandra last year where they set up a micro factory in there doing waste glass oh, and, and textile waste and to produce green ceramics so that was the first one that was launched early last oh, year so good yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so let's talk about the home and i want to talk a little bit about how you sort through your waste <laughs> um, oh, in the home yeah. what it is that you're looking for that would have potential to kind of be brought back to the center yeah. uh, for experimentation. <laughs> it can be just about anything. I think the bag of horrible old snacks, actually lovely old snacks. One weekend getting consumed in the usual metalized packaging, as we've all seen, our chips and other things come oh, out. Oh, yeah, right. And, um, so that's valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you look at any aluminium, even if it is in a form that you don't think it is useful because you look at the plastic on the outside. Oh, well, if it's plastic on the outside, you know, really that's non-recyclable. But the realities are that, you know, metal is still metal, right? Yeah. I mean, if it is in a laminated structure, whether it's aluminium in packaging like this or mm. whether it is copper on circuit boards, if you think about it, these are all laminated structures. So in a circuit board, in any electronic device, uh, it's not just one nice clean so sheet of copper, right? There are different kinds of metals, different kinds of materials. There's some plastic, different kinds of polymers and then ceramics. So if you think about it, all of these complex layered structures that we're talking about are not just waste because they're just all these different sort of layers and you can't separate them out because mm. you look at it and go, well, you know, really, how do you separate all of this out? But the practical realities are then in all of these cases, you know, whether you think about what's there in your windscreen glass, you know, as a laminated yeah, right. structure, I mean, yeah. all of these are designed to do a certain job. Yeah. They're made complex designs because they're meant to be providing a certain function like in your safety glass or in this to keep your food fresh in the packaging. So you can't just say, well, it's now no longer useful after it's been used or the glass has had a crack in it or what have you. 
So the question then, of course, from our point of view is very much about if you are looking at it down at the micro level, is it still useful? And of course, the answer is yes, it is. Always, yeah. Always is. And this is why, of course, from our perspective, when we look at each of these kinds of materials, and especially when you've consumed too many of these really yeah, delicious, uh, delicious stuff. Yeah. But that's the point. It's there to do a certain job and doesn't matter whether it's in your car or food packaging. Yeah. So what should I as a my household do with this? Well, I mean, this is why I think right now we need to be able to go back to our local councils and ask those questions as to how they've got that system set up to make sure that each of these do end up in the right place. Okay. And I think to me, that's really where the next challenge will come in right. joining the dots between what comes out of our homes or our businesses to, of course, how are these solutions deployed? Mm. Because bearing in mind that we can't export a lot of these plastic waste and, of course, tire waste and so on, they are scheduled on the export ban list. So if we can't do that, they have to be processed onshore right here in Australia. So that also means that for an end user who's looking at using traditional materials, could it be that actually looking at feedstock of aluminium could come from these kinds of multi-layered materials. In some instances, people are already doing it where you've got aluminium that can easily be recycled. Right. Absolutely, you should do that. But what we are also saying is that if you can find other forms of materials, like in this case with food packaging, yeah. and of course, if people start to look, it's an endless list of different kinds of materials. So for us to be able to make green aluminium in a way that we can still harvest all that aluminium without it necessarily being diverted into a traditional smelter is really part of the solution. Because mm. if every time you say, well, every city must have a smelter, and every town must have one. Well, of course, it's not going to be possible. Mm -hmm. It will not be economically viable to set it up in that way. But if you can imagine if micro factories allowed us to produce green aluminium, any time your feedstock was a rich source of aluminium, yes, it might have plastics and polymers and others attached to it. That doesn't mean that you can't harvest all of that aluminium. And so the ability to actually find these other pathways, which is back to that micro factory solution, as long as you can get that metal out from these kinds of sources, these complex sources, in a way that it still preserves its quality. Because yeah, okay. there's no point making metal and yeah. then it's oxidized and it's not good quality mm -hmm. because you still have to provide it to an end user who wants high quality mm. metallic feedstock. So what we are really saying is that where possible, if you happen to have a smelter close by, great. But if you can actually find ways to set up micro factories to do right. it in a decentralized so way. So this is a conversation that we should be taking to our local councils. Your yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There may well be an opportunity where you could be imagining that this is being diverted in a way connecting the dots to an end user is, of course, important. Part of the challenge with a lot of these kinds of products is that if you've got a design that makes it really difficult, then, of course, it means that the only way you can actually create value is by saying, well, how do I get to this metal and how do I get to this cardboard? Should it first of all be designed in this way? I mean, do we really have to have this design in that way? So that's the first question. But let's say if you did have multi-layered materials and you had to have that, then you've got to find a way to disengage this mm. so that that metal can still preserve its quality. Because a lot of metals in our everyday items that are there in our furniture, all of this, I mean, we're sitting on this chair, look at this beautiful steel, yeah. right? That That's, of course, useful materials. So in many instances, when you end up actually looking at how much we are, discarding we go oh well yeah we'll put it out on council curbside collection mm, days mm, mm. when that mega pickup happens yeah and then it goes beyond these smaller items and comes into furniture and things like that that we end up discarding i guess to me there is that bigger question 
that sits with it because you suddenly now got metal. In this case, you're using furniture yeah. as an example and yeah. all of this fantastic fabric. So if you're discarding your old furniture, I guess a question then again to be <laughs> asked to your council when they collect it, well, where does it go after this, yeah. right? So I guess to me, that's in a way the next step, that role that we can all play because unless and until we're asking the rather difficult questions, yeah. you're not going to shift the dial because of course you can. Steel is recyclable, of course, no question. And now you think about all of this basically fabric and textiles and everything else that we're now starting to show that could go into green ceramics that we've been talking about. There's no reason why we shouldn't be encouraging more of not only putting these materials into that supply chain, but also hoping that enough of that circularity of those materials and products is coming back into our economy. Because that's how we're going to actually create a whole new resource and enable local jobs to be created where everyone's connected, right, through that system. Yeah. I mean, because the current waste model, it's been very clever, right? We have these bright, colourful bins. We put our waste in them. They get taken out. Mm -hmm. We never see them again or think about them again. Well, we're a lot, lot better if we could, as you say, you know, have the ability to know where, where it's, it's all going, all going yeah. and what's happening yeah. to it. Because the more information and awareness we have, like, yeah. I mean, even in the large curbside collection days, like I was observing on my street recently, they do a fantastic job. But when you've got a mixture of metals and non-metals and waste wood yeah. products and all of that, you wonder how much of that then now that it's gotten mixed up at the point of pickup. Yeah, right. Whereas it would have been easier for people in households or even at the end of one street to go, okay, here's my pile of steel and here's my pile of wood and so on. So that right at that point of pickup, it actually is able to get to the right destinations. But also, what don't we know about the effect of the current waste model? I guess that's what I was thinking about. There. Yes. What, what is the actual impact of how it currently is well, on I our mean, ecosystems, on our communities? What aren't we seeing that you might know? Yeah, look, I think at least a nice thing in some of the communities that we're starting to see already is that where local councils who are interested in the kinds of things that we're doing, for instance, you know, so if I pick up on examples like our partnership with Shoalhaven City Council, council that's taken that leadership role in saying we're going to set up a micro factory Mm. on our side. So Mm. that's a big shift in that thinking. And hats off to these guys, because that's not the norm, right? So to be able to be in that local government setting where you can sort of either say, I'm going to set one up, or then I was seeing more local councils saying, but I'd like to also use those products back into the system. We're starting to see, you know, more and more of that happen. Mm. So a lot of these green ceramic products are now coming back into use where councils are making those choices and decisions Mm. in putting them back into their own organizations, which is something that, again, would not have been the norm years ago. So I think to me that whole sort of circularity in there saying that these circular solutions are actually starting to work because we're seeing examples of people asking for it. Right. Which I think makes a big difference. Yeah. When people are passionate about it, they want those solutions. And whether it's coming from the retail sector or whether it's coming from councils or what have you, I mean All of us live and work in these areas, whether we work in our government sector or businesses. If as individuals we're being impacted by it, we're going, but wait, if there is a solution that allows me to put these products back into the rebuild or the renovation or the retrofit or whatever I'm doing, then you're also taking that responsibility to bring those products back into the supply chain. And I think the more we can do that, the more we then demonstrate that there is a market 
yeah. for it. And of course, the other idea that you advocate is to actually get your clothes repaired, get mm. as much of your products repaired, Yes, use local it, repairing. It, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure in all of our neighborhood shopping areas and what have you, we'll find people who can do that and have those interesting conversations where you can actually find out what it is that you can get repaired. And you've hit the nail on the head there that it's got to be more than just thinking about all the waste that we produce. And textiles is a good one when we're talking about the normal stuff that we all use. Mm. But part of the whole sort of idea that you can get things repaired is, of course, not new. I mean, this is something that no, that's right. I grew that's up back, in Mumbai. Yeah. That was the norm. So I think if we can do more and more of that... Mm we will logically then reduce our consumption, reduce the amount we throw away into landfill, because these are all industries that if you just let it go completely unchecked, it's not going to be good for the planet. So part of what we're really talking about is, yeah, absolutely, the power to make a difference lies in our own hands. And the little mindset yeah. shifts that uh, we have. Exactly right. That relationship so, to... So definitely the ability to reduce, reuse, recycle, the three R's, and then, of course, we talk about that fourth hour of reform is part and parcel of that thinking, whether that reform encompasses how do you get things repaired or whether that reform encompasses I've got to remanufacture all the way into that remanufacture part that we've talked about. In all of these cases, reform actually goes to the heart of that question that fundamentally these materials, those molecules that are there, mm. they don't die. The yeah. macro product yeah. might have yeah. you know, ripped apart. Those fibers might have fallen apart. But basically... Those molecular systems still exist. I just, I just have a few like very short questions while you're thinking of yours. Kind of like a rapid fire little Q and A. We can go move quite quickly through these. The biggest mistake you've made? <laughs> oh gosh! Um, wow! I have to give you the recent example. It only happened to me what two nights ago. You know, it's like when you think, oh, "I'll survive this." Yeah. Uh, ate something I shouldn't have. Okay. <laughs> uh, Yes. So uh, so I can just tell you, when you push the boundaries of your own system, <laughs> and then you regret it the following day. <laughs> Best piece of advice you've been given? I have to say from my mother, she always said, eventually, you have to work hard and prove yourself. And that's all up to you to prove yourself and go out every day and challenge yourself and don't be pushed around, I guess, mm. and let your own strengths come through. And that's the best advice. Yeah. Mm. Something that makes you angry? Ooh, <laughs> something that makes me angry. Yes, curbside collection days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah driving on streets, yeah. you know, really makes me angry. Oh, yeah. Those days, yeah, because I see all the stuff that people throw away. And you almost sort of want to stop and go, what? Oh, ah. why are you throwing this stuff away? This is perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, makes me really angry. Yeah. yeah, and if we could be, in a way, able to share some of that. A bit better would be pretty awesome. I would love it for people to have it collected in an area, in a community or yeah. down the street and go, yeah, okay, you know, you've got a week before the council comes to pick it yeah, up. Kind of Just kind of go help idea. yourself and, you know, all of that. Weirdest item you've put through the micro factories or that you've experimented with? Oh, <laughs> the weirdest item. Yeah, you know what? It probably would have to be these chip packets. I just oh, yeah. remember my PhD student, Sonia, was doing this work. I don't know who was more excited, she or I. <laughs> it was uh, like, yeah. oh, you mean it works? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and what you're most proud of? Oh, look, I guess I'm really proud of the fact that you know, I get to come to work every day at the Smart Center where I get to work with inspiring people every day. The people at the 
the university, students, our staff. We basically there because we're all very passionate about mm, mm. the work that we do. And I guess I feel really proud of the fact that we all love working with each other and we enjoy it and we challenge each other. Thanks so much, Vena. Oh, Thanks for your sharing, thank for your you. work. Thank you for being part of this. Um, thanks to Vivid and uh, join me in thanking you. Thank you. You can read more about Vina's work in issue 69 of Dumbo Feather magazine, available over at dumbofeather.com forward slash shop. While you're there, you might like to subscribe and get the magazine delivered straight to your door. Bye for now. This podcast was brought to you by Birkenstock Australia. Discover the simple beauty and health benefits of walking naturally on this earth. Birkenstock, tradition since 1774.